Shimei. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes were founded by a group of keen rugby players, keen beer drinkers out of Old Lemontonians RC in beautiful Warwickshire. The organisation was founded in the wake of private of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in 2008 in Afghanistan. And since being formed, Rugby Heroes has raised over £110,000 for military charities. They do this through organising events such as rugby matches, beer and gin festivals, rugby festivals, supper clubs. They are set to increase the events they're doing and increase the fundraising for military charities, partly through the uh, formation, the founding of... uh, the Forces Barbarians RFC, which is a well, this the rugby club for HM Forces veterans. You can also join the Forces Barbarians RFC if you are not ex-military. You can still join up as a social member and be a part of a, an amazing, unique club, which is uh, which is spread UK wide and even overseas, where we've got ex-military members overseas have joined up. Forces Barbarians RFC is not a replacement for your existing club, your existing commitments. It is complementary to it. It's a classic old-school club. We are aware that our members are all over the UK and, like I said, overseas. So we don't have training sessions. What we do have is regular fixtures when COVID's over. Regular fixtures. You rock up and you play on the day. We select people not on ability. We select people on your geographical location relevant to the matches, which are all over the UK, and also, obviously, availability. So, Forces Barbarians RFC. Uh, Fubars.co.uk is the, known as the Fubars. If you join Forces Barbarians, you become known as a, as a Fubar. And um, you can find out more about it at Fubars.co.uk. Like I said, the Fubars are a fundraising arm uh, for um, Rugby for Heroes. And... Uh, they're going to be able to add events, fundraising events to Rugby for Heroes um, portfolio. Uh, Rugby for Heroes, as I said, they had events planned for 2020. Um, COVID has put the kibosh on that, right? So, but they want to get those events underway as soon as possible. COVID uh, restrictions allowing. So you need to keep a tab on what Rugby for Heroes are doing. You can do that by going to rugbyforheroes.org. That's rugbyforheroes.org, or by Follow them on social media at rugby number four heroes. Thank you to Rugby Heroes um, and Mike Valance at the helm and everybody involved for um, sponsoring the podcast and all the support to the military community and the rugby community that they enable. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group was founded in 1982 with the express objective of developing a mechanical landmine clearing system which would meet the design criteria which its founders considered to be the prime critical factors, namely for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel landmines using mechanical and manual means, and the location, identification and, all important, disposal of all munitions and unexploded ordnance. Aardvark concentrated its design capabilities on the landmine clearance process which would best suit the best, the post conflict and humanitarian clearance and shows a rotating chain flail system. Aardvark also explored the possibility of using various commercially available vehicles for the role of prime mover but found that all have shortcomings and thus designed and built its own. However, to meet the needs of the military combat role in minefield breaching, Aardvark has cooperated with manufacturers of main battle tanks and armor personnel carriers and designed flails which can be added as a minefield breaching device to those vehicles. It was, after all, a British invention to put a flail on the front of a World War II main battle tank for use in the liberation of Europe. The consequence of their design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialised vehicle for the destruction or detonation of landmines, while permitting the flail system to be adapted for attachment to a minefield breaching machine. The task to clear the world of mines, landmines, is enormous. The estimate of numbers varies, but it is certainly in excess of 90 million with some sources such as the Red Cross estimated up to 110 million. The problem is not just the number of mines, but the huge areas contaminated. And Aardvark play their role in trying to clear these areas and, uh, and making the world a safer place, and also in protecting not just people, civilians and military from that unexploded donors, but also protecting assets and things of value. Um, the Aardvark group, apart from their technical innovations, they also... Uh, are very supportive of the military community and in fact do employ uh, several uh, military veterans in their organisation so if you want to find out more about Aardvark you can go to aardvark.group 
or you can search online for the Aardvark Group, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. Yeah. Thank you to my sponsors. Also, thank you to my Patreon supporters today. Very much appreciated for uh, supporting the podcast. If you're watching the video of this podcast, you will see my Patreon supporters' names rolling in the credits at the end. So, onto the podcast. My guest today is James Hook. James Hook is a former professional rugby player. He has played for Perpignan, Gloucester, Neath, and the Ospreys. He also played uh, for Wales, and he also played for the British and Irish Lions. He is uh, he is recently retired, and we talked about that in the podcast. And uh, he's embarking upon uh, writing children's books and other ventures. He's also kicking coach at Ospreys, and uh, and has taken a role with Swansea Uni as well. He needs no further introduction. This is the HR podcast. My name is Hugh Keir, and my guest today is James Hook. Enjoy. James Huck, pleasure to meet you. You too, Hugh. Cheers, Great mate. to see you. Thanks and for having uh, me on. Also achieving social distancing. Yeah, just about. <laughs> uh, so, you were asking before about Forces Barbarians, who are we going to play? Oh, let's lead in in a minute. Basically play play anyone. Mm-hmm. So, the, the members come from all over the UK. Um, so, we try and have a game, basically Scotland, Wales, Cutland, England, that's for next year, yeah. uh, against just average sites. We don't train. Just rock up on the day, giving your kit, play. It's like that. Yeah, it's literally like the barbarians. Huh? Yeah, you can't. Yeah, exactly. But you can't. We can't have training sessions. We're all, we're all over. I mean, some of our members are New Zealand, America. People used to be HM forces, and they're all over. So we're like, we've got a we target in America tour next year. It's a proper. Yeah, it's mega. So, which leads me on to nicely. I I put out a question to the forces barbarians members earlier. Mm. I said, James, what's coming on? Anyone got any questions, right? Now, I apologise in advance. You know what rugby crowds are like, okay? So, some of these are serious. Some of these are just bollocks. <laughs> right, I've got three of these now. Uh, not asking that one. <laughs> How many of those you got? <laughs> right, here's the standard run, right? Johnny Ball. Not that Johnny Ball. Different Johnny Ball. He said, who's the England player you most wanted to be? This is this is, this is is the standard we're at, right? Yeah, it's a good start. Uh, oh, I suppose Johnny Wilkinson, I suppose. Oh, certain so, Simon Piles there said he barely says Johnny Wilkinson. Is that what he says? <laughs> well, he's the first one that comes to mind, and he's why Johnny? And I, well, I suppose a ten. Bring us into you. I suppose it's a ten. Um, someone I, I admired growing up. I used to love watching his DVDs. So as a kid, so I, was, I, I always wanted to be a goal kicker. So I used to watch uh, Johnny Wilkinson, The Perfect Ten. Have you seen that DVD? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Yeah. So I used to watch that all the time and. He, used to, he was obviously dedicated, going out practicing, kicking all the time. So I used to, used to basically copy him. So when I had the chance to, to play against him, I was I was over the moon, like you know. So yeah. I don't know. I suppose he's he's the first one that comes to mind. So makes sense. He's not, but he's not a bad on a beat, to be fair, is he? No, not not bad at all. So, I mean, I suppose if you have you had to be an England player, that's the thing, isn't it? You win <laughs> by choice, right? Got a few here. A guy called Tony Shannon, uh, ex-military Irish, plays for Old Lems up there. Yeah. Uh, if you had to do it all again. And you had to be a forward. Which position would you play and why? Oh, fucking no. I wouldn't be a front row, any. Tell you what. Uh, probably a seven, like a Justin Tipbrick type of player. Yeah. yeah. On the outside of the scrum, there, standing. Yeah, away stay, there. stay away from the front row. Put one. in the big hits. <laughs> get your hands on the go. Right. Okay. Uh, right. The laws of the game are changing to make it safer and safer. Understandably, the front row is always an issue. Mm. But how far should the RFU go in making it safer? Safer when it's a contact sport. Oh, they, they try in, they with obviously the the tackle area trying to sort of bring the, the the tackle height down all the time. But I don't know, it's tough. I think you look, but then you've got someone like Owen Farrell then with his tackle the other day. Uh, he gets only gets a sort of four five week ban. Do you know what I mean? So I don't, don't know what sort of example I set then really. But I know they are trying. They are trying to make the game safer. Um, but it, I don't know. It's, it's a contact sport, and like you, you, I'm thinking of players like like Richard Hibbard who I've played with most of my career. And he, he loves the physicality, and the reason he plays the game is because he enjoys the physica- physicality. So you've got to be careful about taking too much of that away as well. Like you know, There's nothing better than putting a big hit in his eye. Well, I wouldn't know, massive. but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, on that, what it, what it seems to be causing 
causing an issue at the moment. One of the things that's causing an issue is how good the camera technology is. Mm. And when they, they watch, a, they'll replay a big hit or a tackle or like an accidental high tackle or something yeah. like that. And they'll play it back, but in slow time. Mm. And it's not the speed it was. And it, no. I think it's it goes against the player when you can't think that fast when it, it, slow mo th- makes it look like you got more time than you actually have. To yeah, definitely. Right. And like you know, if, you, if you're making a tackle and it's too high, sometimes the the ball, the play with the ball is, is dipped, you know. But in slow mo, you, you you don't really see that. Oh, sorry, in, in real time, you don't really see that, do you? So, and it's quite tough because you know, it's a split second reaction from the tackler, and it, it is tough sometimes. But I suppose you know, the, the blade and ones you've got to try and cut out, but some of the 50 50 ones, you know, are just sort of bad timing, I suppose, mm. sometimes. Yeah, uh, I think. Oh no, yeah. There's one more, one more. Kicking oriented again from Tony Shannon. Kicking has always been for those players who have the dedication to practice and practice and practice. What tips would he give minis and juniors when they start out wanting to be a kicker? And did and did you have any step changes in your kicking training and development? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I say, I, I watched all of Johnny Wilkinson DVDs, Neil Jenkins DVDs, and you mentioned it just there, who is. It's, You've got to, obviously it's a, it's a technique and you know you've got to understand the technique but it, it's just practicing it's just executing that that technique you've got so you've got to settle on you know sort of how many steps you take back and meet to the side the way you want to place the ball so you get comfortable with the way you want want to kick and, and feel comfortable kicking and then it's just reps you know what I mean I'm obviously lucky enough to be in the Ospreys now as, as, a, as a kicking coach and especially the younger boys you know the, it's, you've got to go out there and do the work. You know, it's no good just having sort of five or six kicks at the end of a session and, and hoping you can turn up on the weekend and, and knock them over in front of big crowds. Like you know, you've got to you've got to put that pressure on yourself and and work hard and put the hours in. And and if you want to become you know the Johnny Wilkerson, Neil Jenkins, you know, or Lee Halfpenny, bigger, whoever it is, then the, these boys are putting the hours in after everybody's gone home from from training and have all the other players in in their cars spinning away and. And to be honest, that's why they, they do get paid, you know, probably a bit more money than everyone else because they probably put in more work in and, and getting the results on the weekend. On that, right, on the on that kicking under pressure side of things, obviously you well known for your reliability with the kicking, especially under the, under the pressure. Um, how how do you go about blocking that? I mean, especially in a big stadium, big mm. match, how do you go about mentally, when you're there, you're lined up, the ball's on the tee, how do you go about preparing your mind for it? Is it a case of, do you shut it out or do you, Bring it in and sort of accept it. It's how do you shut out sort of seventy four thousand people? Like it's uh, you got to ask that. You can't you can't shut it out. It's, it's there and that's, and that's that. Like but going back to what I'm saying, I think you take that confidence from the work you've put in the week or you know the, the last month and knowing that you've, you've put the work and confidence in in your ability and your technique to to knock it over. And you've got to try and draw yourself in a little bit. And it's it's just you, the ball, and the post. You know there's there's surroundings and the crowd around you. And like I say, you can't block that out, but you've got to try and try and bring it in a little bit, but just trust in your confidence and, and your technique throughout the week. Repetition. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. hard work. It's like most things, really, isn't it? But, yeah, it's just a little bit different because it's just you and the ball and the post, really, for, for that sort of 30, 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, retired now, obviously, professional rugby, or retired from playing, I should say. Yeah. Looking back, right, how... From the perspective of uh, an employee, should we say, just not not of any particular club, just generally, <clears throat> how ruthless is it at top flight? Top flight rugby, how much how challenging is it? What just from day to day, or just the, the game, or just day to day, day to day? Obviously, the matches themselves physically demanding, mm. mentally demanding. But outside of that, I mm. mean, that's I mean, the match is eighty minutes, or yeah. 85, 90 minutes of a day, right? Um, what about all the rest of it as a package, the whole thing? What, what was it like for you? Yeah, every, everything you do leading up to that game is revolved around around that game. So, you know, the build-up on a Monday, you know, you, you, so you're playing a Saturday. On a Monday, okay, you review the game from, from a Saturday. But, you know, whether it's a win or a loss, you, you haven't got too much time to, to reflect on that because there's a game the following week. So, you know, it, it's tough sometimes if you have a really good win, especially, you know, for Wales and the Six Nations or whatever, and you want to try and celebrate that. It, it's... You know, it's on to the next game. You've got six days and there's another big game. So you can't focus too much on it. But on the positive side, if you have a bad loss, then you know we've got you know a game the next week. So it is tough. And I, I suppose that there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. You know, it's, it's obviously great. I never wouldn't have changed anything about my career. But for, for 15, 16 years, it's, it's constant. You know, week after week, it's, you know, you sort of park, park the game from the weekend and you're on to the next game. It's, it's constant. And I think... You, as a player, you know, you're used to that sort of routine as well. And I suppose when you finish playing, 
like I have, like you say, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have gone into a, to a job, you know, as soon as I finish, which which I'm, I'm thrilled about. But it's that routine. Usually on a Sunday, you give me a schedule for the week. You know exactly what you're doing on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until the following Sunday. And I suppose when you finish, you, you don't have that anymore. It's probably the same with you, Hugh, and with, with the army. You probably don't quite have the same sort of schedule as, as a rugby player. But when you come out of it, you, it's, it's completely different. Even though I'm, I'm still in the environment of of the rugby environment I'm not a player so even though I know a lot of the boys there now I'm sort of I'm sort of away from that side of it you know the changing room banter I'm not involved in any of that and I suppose that is the the toughest thing coming away from it because I'm done playing I was I was happy you know I can I can watch a game now and I don't think to myself I wish I was out there playing because I'm done you know, my body wasn't wasn't uh, willing to carry on really so I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that but I suppose just getting used to the things you've been used to, like the small things, like you know, I talk about Sean, the kit man, great bloke, you know, just turning up and just having a, having a coffee after training with him, like stuff you take for granted, which are there, and when you finish, it's it, it all changes. But like I say, I'm lucky enough to be in the Ospreys with him, and we can still have a coffee. But it's just little things like that which perhaps people don't really understand sometimes. Mm. It's interesting, like you know, analogize it to the military side of things. I agree. It's, I think it's one of the, you know, it's we'll come on to it again in a bit. It's, it's that change from what you know to the unknown. When I was in, and it's interesting that your your perspective on this. When I was in, one of the things I would struggle with, as in hindsight, I would find uncomfortable, should we say? And again, I didn't notice it at the time. Was I would go from work, like I don't know, go go on leave basically. Mm. So for you, it would be equivalent to be the end of the season. You know, I go, I go, I finish whatever I was doing, and then go on leave for two, one, two or three weeks, whatever it was, and I really wouldn't know what to do myself for the one, two or three weeks because the routine had been taken away. Hmm. So it'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't have a clue what to do and the natural yeah. thing is to think, go on, go on, go on, go on the piss and yeah, do some yeah, crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, what, what about, what's your experience <clears throat> like that? You know, you know, gaps in the season and then the off season. How did you, was, yeah, what was that like for you? Well, when I was playing or, yeah. or no, when I finished? No, when you were playing. Um, oh, to, to be honest, it, it, it was nice. I enjoyed it because I, I got, a, got a wife and, and three boys now and, so they they fill my time when I'm when I'm not or when I wasn't playing. Uh, so in the weeks we'd have off, uh, you know, well four or five weeks we'd have off at the end of the season. We'd we'd go away on holiday and and try and rest the body a bit, you know, and uh, obviously catch up with with friends and, and and go out and have a few drinks because obviously, like I say, during the season you you constantly you can't have a few drinks obviously after games, but you know you're constantly thinking about the next game. So it's just nice to switch off, complete switch off on rugby, not pick up a ball up. Until my boys asked me out in the garden to have a full full game of uh, game of rugby for two or three hours, but uh, yeah, just try and switch off as much as you can and get away from it, and, and not even really watch rugby. And you know, so when you do come back, you're sort of mentally fresh as well as physically. Not even watching rugby, complete step away from it. Um, no, I, I, to be honest, if it's, if it's on in the background, I you know I'll, I'll have a look look at the score and stuff, and but no, I, not really. You know, when I wasn't playing. Now it's a bit different. Now I finish, you know, I'm enjoying watching a bit of rugby and doing a bit of analysis and things like that. But when I was playing, if if it wasn't anything to do with our game or the opposition we playing against, yeah, you know, I, I want to first to be honest. Mm. Mm. On the uh, for the clubs you played for, they must have all been pretty different the way they went about and did things. Were any of them particularly stand out in terms of the, that routine you talked about, <laughs> the discipline you talked about? Um, and also, like the culture and the people you were with, anyone stand out as being particularly challenging? You don't have to name names if you want it, but it's uh, just you know, clubs. You mean no, I was in yeah, clubs. Club, well, yeah, yeah, I think so. I played obviously played in the Ospreys uh, at two stints there. Then went to Gloucester and went to Perpignan. And Gloucester and, and the Ospreys were pretty similar in terms of the professionalism and you know the well drilled, the conditioning staff and everything were, were were really professional. Perpignan was was different and. I'm not saying it was good or bad, but it was it was different in terms of the professionalism. So when we got out there, so for example, if I was playing on a Welsh summer tour and my club was the Ospreys or Gloucester, you'd come back, you'd they'd look how many games you played or how, how many minutes you'd had in the tour, and then probably give you so so many you know so many weeks off and say right you look to target this game when you come back. But in Perpignan, I'd gone. I think it was South Africa. We went. Uh, yeah, I think it was a South Africa tour summer tour. I went. On came back straight into Perpignan. Didn't have any time off. My my pre-season training. So you'd usually have three four weeks of intense pre-season training. My pre-season training was literally uh, a lap. The doctor came out. He said do a lap on the pitch just to make sure I I could run. I felt good, which I knew I could because I'd played a week ago. 
And he was like, right, you're fit to play in the pre-season game against Toulouse on Friday night. And it was like a two or three pre-season games and straight into the top 14 league. And, and to be honest, I didn't notice any difference. So the difference from having a, a full four, five-week pre-season to having nothing, I didn't really notice anything throughout the season. So... I don't know. I don't know whether, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was just run differently. Like you know, it's, it's a little bit more different now because that was back in sort of 2011. So you know, sort of nine years on now, but it, it probably has changed a little bit. But it's still a little bit behind in France in terms of that professionalism. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That four or five weeks compared to nothing, no preparation, didn't make much of a difference. I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting because I think it says again, you got this is just sort of start hard to tell without seeing everything else that's going on, but. It, it, seem, it seems to scream the value of rest, hmm. you know. Um, yeah, of rest in the body, rest in the mind, and how, how much capability that gives you. That is interesting, I didn't yeah. realise. Realize. Yeah, it's just how diff- two different clubs work, really. And like France, you know, Clermont was, a, when I was there, it was probably one of the more professional French clubs. And like I say, they're probably all sort of catching up a little bit now, but in terms of the conditioning and stuff, the Welsh and English clubs are way, way ahead than, than the French. Mm. When did you retire? Was it May? Yeah, so, the, well, before before the lockdown, so I was open to finish, my contract finished in, in May, so I was open to finish off with a couple of games, but, uh, yeah, I got cut short, so my contract finished uh, May this year. How's it been since leaving? you obviously gone straight into a job. Yeah. It's, it's a strange one, because I think everyone doing the lockdown was temporarily retired, really, weren't they? Because they couldn't do anything, so it, obviously for that certain amount of time... I was just, you know, spending time with the family, going out with the kids like probably everyone else was, you know, going for their daily walks and things. And I knew by then I'd finished playing um, and I knew I was going to be going into to a job when it all sort of kicked off again with, with the Ospreys and, and with Swansea University. So, yeah, I was quite, like I said just now, you know, I was comfortable in the fact I'd finished playing, that I wasn't going to play again. I, I Obviously, I suppose I have my testimonial match will probably go on next summer. Um, but in terms of playing professionally, I was comfortable with that and... I think that's the biggest thing when speaking to players who retired is just trying to get into that routine and, and like we just spoke about not having that banter with the players and just getting into your sort of uh, a new job and it's, it's a new life essentially isn't it you know and uh, I'm, I'm probably a little bit different because I'm still around the, the boys and that sort of sport and environment but I can imagine I can see how tough it probably is for some people who get cut short get their careers cut short you know in their early 20s mid 20s where at the top of their game and like I say, all I know is turning up the training, going through the training routine throughout the week, and then that's gone. And all of a sudden, you've got to go out and, and you, you, you're not on the same wages, you know, you're probably not on any wages for a bit because you probably haven't got a job. Um, some boys don't have insurance, so obviously that's another killer blow. And um, and if they haven't got anything to fall back on, which is something to be fair, the, the Ospreys and the Welsh regions in particular now, we've got a WRPA uh, representative, which is the Welsh Players Association, a guy called Tim in the Ospreys, who's who is a bit, he's a godsend. He's he's basically puts in place things for for every single player, whether they're a high profile player, young academy player, there's finds out what their interests are, you know, what they're interested in, in doing, whether it's further education, an apprenticeship, carpentry course, whatever it is. So if something like that does happen where their career's cut short or they finish a career on their terms, whatever it is, they've got something to fall back on because my first stint in the Ospreys it was nothing like that. You know, you you sort of uh yeah, you know, if that happened, do sort of fend for yourself type of thing, like you know. That's that's brilliant. <clears throat> WRPA and do do most clubs have that now? Um, so it's the Welsh Players Association. So that that's I mean, for all of do Wales. Most have someone like him in the club doing that. So yeah, there was one in every club. So Tim Tim Jones, ex police officer, great great bloke, and Sean knows him as well. He's uh, he's in the Ospreys, and then there's obviously another three then in in Cardiff, Lethley, and, and Newport. But the England have it as well, um, but they don't have one individually for, for each club. They have sort of one guy split around sort of three or four clubs. So you, you wouldn't see him, or you'd see him perhaps once a month or once every two or three weeks. But Tim is there. He's there half a six in, in St. Helens now because we've moved there. Half a six every morning. He's probably one of the last to leave as well. And it's not just, you know, stuff for when you finish rugby. It's, it's anything. If you've got any any problems, he's, he's almost like a psychologist. He's, you know, a WRPA rep. He's... He's a guy that has, you know, been welcomed and, and needed. I think. That's, that is yeah. that is flipping awesome. What about um, what about like in your situation where you you know it's coming to an, it's not an abrupt end, but you know by choice it's coming to an end. 
Did he have any involvement with you? Like before, was it like a three months before, six months before, yeah. kind of prep to get out? Yeah, yeah, it was. And so, obviously, I'm doing into coaching now. So I I done my level three coaching qualification, which the, the Welsh Rugby Union have put a professional players uh, level three on for the for the professional boys, which has started this just started this year. So Tim, you know, was the one that got the ball rolling there and got got me and a few of the other boys, Justin Tiprick, Paul James, Bradley Davis, Lee Halfpenny. There's a lot of boys on that course who just come to the end of the first year now and that's going to roll every year. So he helped get me on that, and but that, cause that's something the route I wanted to go down. But like I say, a, any young boys is like a, a sort of booklet you fill out basically, which finds out exactly what your your interests are and what you know things you potentially could go into when you finish playing because. If you're lucky, you know, what's Alan Jones, he's 35 now, you know, he's probably got a couple of years left, probably maximum, so it's 37, 38 maximum, you're done, you know what I mean? But you still got, you know, sort of two-thirds of your life left with a bit of luck, so you, you obviously got some, got to have something to fall back on. So he's the man there that's, that's sorting all that out and trying to make it as easy a transition for the boys as, as possible. So, yeah, like I say, he's, he's a godsend and, and a top load to go with it. You, mm. You'd go on with him, who? <laughs> is that going to top look? <laughs> um, no, that is interesting. I think because, again, analogies that can be drawn here is that when you're in a when you're in a bubble of something of something that's elite, uh, be that rugby rugby clubs, teams, or like my kind of background, hmm. ex-military background, when you're in that bubble, you've you seem to be very short-sighted because anything outside of that bubble is irrelevant yeah. okay if it's not if it's not towards the common goal of winning the game winning the league winning the cup whatever it is then it it, it is especially in the old school times irrelevant yeah, to what you're yeah. doing now like so family uh, take a back seat yeah. you know downtime take a back seat injured yeah you're fucking you're you're off the radar until you're, you're better son yeah um and what that means, and like as you pointed out, what that means is, in relative terms, the career in inverted commas is pretty short. Yeah, it's not like a forty, fifty year career of like traditional sort of corporate means. You've mm. got, a, like you said, you can have a whole other life after that. Mm. Um, I, and uh, that's what I say. It's really good. Uh, Tim, Tim is there doing. I didn't realize that. It's really good. Yeah. It almost makes me wish we had that. <clears throat> we got yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? I'll tell the army. <clears throat> yeah. But it, it is important, and I suppose yeah, like the difference with, I suppose the, the real world, as, as people call it, in, in the, the rugby sort of uh, world, is we sort of almost do it backwards to to other people where you earn you know good money at professional level of rugby, um, and then when you finish, you know that that all of a sudden just drops instantly. You know what I mean? It's not a, a gentle decline. It's like you know you're on decent money, and then gone, it's gone, and you got to work your way back up. But sort of you know sort of a normal job where there's you know accountant the solicitor whatever you work your way up and you keep building your wages will go up and hopefully you'll stay at, at a constant level pension pension exactly mm. so and that, that's another difference which you talk about the routine and the other things you know it's a financial impact for, for a lot of players as well so you know there's a lot of things to, to sort of bear in mind really mm. I suppose it must make you quite <clears throat> entrepreneurial minded I think generally because again it, is it is it almost like an unknown to you when did you get into professional rugby? How young were you? Uh, eighteen. Yeah, probably, 18. so you're like a kid. Yeah, right. So, is it was when you were coming at the end of that uh, um, your career as a professional player? Although you had a, like a job lined up, did it seem almost an unknown as to what you're going to do? If like, did you th- give any thoughts if that fell through the like contingency plan? Because you got no mm. experience like in real world. In, in, yeah, in yeah, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, you don't quite know how it's going to pan out. Like I say, I, that's why I feel I'm lucky I've fallen into a, a job which I'm, I'm happy with and, and really enjoying. But yeah, if, if I hadn't worked out, I'd like to think, like I thought I'd gone into some other sort of coaching job because that's the route I wanted to go down. And like I say, you know, I sort of probably, I'm happy with sort of financially, I sort of, you know, looked after the money I sort of earned to, to protect, you know, me and my family and look after them because I know I'm going to be finished in my, you know, mid 30s. And like I say, we talked well, you know, we've got plenty of our life left to live. So, um, yeah, I did did sort of think about that. But at the end of the day, when you finish, you don't quite know exactly how it's going to pan out. And and that's that's the reason for, for working towards it whilst you're still playing. So, you know, to try and make the best of it when you do actually finish. Mm. Mm. What's, um, what you, is there anything you're finding challenging at the minute? <clears throat> Unexpectedly. Um, 
It's a good question. Um, You're too I, stable. I, You're too <laughs> stable, mate. No, I need some instability. <laughs> it is tough. I suppose that 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 banter and stuff with the boys is, is tough. Like you know, when when you go in and but that's that's not a big big issue. You know what I mean? Because I I'm quite happy with you know obviously the life I got with my family and stuff. So that keeps me busy and I've got that sort of balance if if you like, which which I'm happy with. But um, yeah, what am I struggling with? I don't know. It's, uh, I think now I've found that routine. I think initially when I first finished, it's, it's just trying to find that balance. My, my job at the moment is split up into sort of three parts, essentially, because I'm working with the Swansea University. I'm working with the Ospreys Academy as a skills skills coach, and then I'm doing the kicking stuff with, with the senior squad. So, you know, I'm sort of arranging my own sort of diary around the kicking. The university and the, the academy stuff is sort of set in stone. So I'm just trying to work around that, really. So, like, like I say, I, I'm just glad I've got some sort of routine and structure because... I think if I didn't have that, then perhaps it might be a little bit more unsettling. Then. So tell me how the book fits into that. <clears throat> you must have some, some anxiety around the book. <laughs> well, that's out next week now, so it's, about, uh, it's, be, it's supposed to be out June the 4th, but obviously because of the lockdown, it uh, was put back. So uh, how did it come about? So when I played in Gloucester, my eldest boy, Harrison, he, he wanted a, a kid's rugby book. So as you do, you just think, you know, it, well, there was a book fell after school, so I thought I'd pick one up. There wasn't one there. So I thought I'd just go online, you know, and, and grab one, no problem. But it, there wasn't any there. There was <clears throat> a lot of fact books and, you know, Rugby World Cup books and things like that, but didn't really interest him. So that's what got me thinking initially about the idea. Um, so, like, a, you, were, you were looking for, you know, like you got the football, which is like Roy of the Rovers, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, like Frank Lampard's football books, things like that. Um, and there, w- there wasn't anything like that to do with rugby. So that was when, when like I say, when I was in Gloucester. So I thought myself, you know, there's definitely a gap in the market for, for rugby books for kids. But didn't do anything about it for about a year. And then um, I got back to the Ospreys and there's a, a family friend, who Matt Malpope, who... Uh, he, I know that. Yeah, he's, he's a radio DJ and, you know, he's a musician and all that. And like I say, he lives in Mumbles, family friend. So I just rang him up on one of our days off and I just said, oh, Mal, you know, I got this idea, you know. I don't know what you think about it, but can you put me in touch with a children's author? Like, and I can have a chat to him and see what he thinks about it and... Anyway, he got me in touch straight away. We met up uh, within a couple of days, and Dave Braley, who I'm co-authoring the book with, I told him about, I sort of wrote a lot of ideas down and what I, I wanted it to come across like, and he was like, brilliant, great. So we got right then instantly, um, and th- the book itself to write didn't take sort of too long. You know, we met up sort of a couple of times a week for for a few hours and got it done, but that that was almost uh, the easier part. He was trying to get the book published then, uh, and try and find a publisher to to back it. So that was a bit of <clears throat> a bit of a wait, probably I don't know five six months probably where we had a couple of sort of nibbles, but nobody really came back. And then then Polaris, a Scottish publisher called Pete Burns, who uh, loves his rugby, he got in touch and said, you know, I love the idea, this is great, and we want to meet up. So he came down from Scotland, met us in Cardiff, and pretty much after that we, we had to get a literacy agent as well, sorry, who sort of set up the meeting and things. And after that meeting, it was like, yeah, we had a two-book two book contract. And it was like, flipping heck, this, this is brilliant. So it'd been sort of the high of sort of getting the book, finishing, thinking this is great, to then, oh, it's no good if no one picks it up, like, you know? So once once he sort of agreed and we signed the contract, it was, it was brilliant. Have you written a book before? No. What was that like? Mate, when was, yeah, it was, <laughs> when was the last time you wrote a story? <clears throat> yeah, well, since, yeah, English in school. But like I say, so Dave, Dave is, is the, he is the children's author, and it's basically sort of my, my ideas and we say to each other, you know, he, he couldn't do it without me and I couldn't do it without him, as simple as that. And uh, it works so well. He's, you know, another good guy who we get on really well with. Well with. So, you know, it was tough at the start where <clears throat> he'd have some ideas and I'd be like, you know, well, perhaps it's not what I want, you know. So I have to go back to him and say, you know, can we change this, can we change that? And he'd come to me and say the same thing. And so with a collaboration, you know, you've got to be on the same page and, Luckily enough, we we were, and yeah, like I say, we've got two books. So, are you chucking your own like childhood stories in there? Yeah, so it's it's a fictional book. Uh, a guy called a boy called Jimmy Joseph, um, and he a lot of him is is based around me. So, is it you know, there's a couple of fictional stories and stuff to sort of add to the story. But for example, you know, he, he wears glasses. I was a I, I short sighted, wore glasses since the age of nine. I wear contact lenses now. Asthmatic, uh, love sour cream on toast, all the things I I did when I was younger, and 
is, is a relationship my grandparents, you know, really close to my grandparents, and that relationship with Jimmy in the book, you know, is reflected in the book. So there's a, there's a lot of similarities uh, in the book compared to me. <laughs> Salad cream on toast. Sorry, have we tried it here or not? No, I fucking haven't. <laughs> we, we put I, some in the post on after, right? I tell you what I tried the other day. Was it, <clears throat> it was, uh, it was uh, Simon's recommendation. It was uh, two things. Oh, yeah, peanut butter on Marmite on toast. I've had marmite, marmite on toast. Man. Peanut butter and marmite, right? And no, it was all right to eat. It wasn't disgusting. It wasn't. Nice. I like both those things, yeah. but it was like chewing cement. You know, it's like <laughs> oh god, I had jaw strain. Well, and if you then, try that, you could try sour cream on toast. Then, you know, I, I I don't like sour cream. But the yeah. other one was uh, peanut butter on bacon. <laughs> oh, I prefer the sound of that. It was nice. It was there. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, right I'll off, give I'll give that a go. Going right off topic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you get that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, mate. It was you, Salad Crew on, to- Salad and crew on Toast as a kid. Flipping out. Your parents not like you. <laughs> Flipping out. Guys, all left in the house, I think. <laughs> What's your earliest memory of rugby? Uh, <clears throat> playing with my brother's age group. My brother's two years older than me. Um, and he, he's a great rugby player as well. And just unfortunate, he you know, had a lot of injuries throughout his career. So he had to cut short at sort of 27 years old. I think he was 28. Um, but anyway, yeah, I started off for my local club, Abraham Quinns, and that's actually the the shirt that's on the front of the book, the the black and red hoops. Um, and yeah, pl- just playing, and I was I was five, going on six at the time, so he was playing for the under eights. So I was way too young, and he'd never be able to do it now. But I'd be there, my kit drowning me on the side of the pitch, and it was like, uh, our coach Di Braga. Um, he'd always chuck me on for like the last minute of the game, and I'd hang about on the wing and. You know, every now and again I'd get the odd touch and I'd get piled, piled into the ground by these big blokes. But like, that's that's my earliest memory. And actually, speaking with my grandparents, my first try was, I think I was six years old, playing for my brother's team. I snuck in at the corner and uh, it was filmed. Uh, one of the parents filmed it and put it on the, on the tape. And my grandfather, you know, and my grandparents, so proud, they'd play it to everyone who'd come up the house. And uh, he left it in the, the tape recorder one day. And then taped uh, Coronary Street over it, so and he he was devastated. And every time he gets reminded about it now, he's uh, he's got out of it. But uh, yeah, that's probably my earliest memory playing for Abraham Quins. Flipping that Quins, didn't Abraham have three different teams? <clears throat> Quins All Stars, Quins Green Stars, Green Stars, Green Stars, oh. and uh, the Abraham Juniors. Yeah, so it was Abraham Wizards. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I used to hate that. I was bloody freezing. I was <laughs> bloody freezing. Hailstones coming in horizontally. Uh, that was down Abraham Green Stars. That was down by the beach. Stars, yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And uh, you must have played for the school. You went to Glenavon, didn't you? Glenavon. Yeah, yeah. So Central Juniors Primary, and then Glenavon Comprehensive. I drove down there the other day actually because they've got rid of that school now, and um, it's just it's built houses on there. So the, the street name is, is called Glenavon, but there's no Glenavon school there. When did you start, Neath? So I started playing in Neath when I was 18. So when I got my professional contract with the academy, I was, I was playing semi-professional for Neath as well. Was it, did, in terms of an enjoyment factor <clears throat> of, of, of playing rugby like that professionally, or semi-professionally then, was it more enjoyable then than compared to now? I take the, like, the money mm. aspect aside. Yeah, yeah. But just on an emotional level. I don't know, I got asked that question the other day, and I think there, like, you, you play... You you play for the love of game anyway, but when you become professional and you know it, it is more of a job, even though you enjoy it and it doesn't really feel like a job, that that pressure comes with you then, when when it is your job and you're getting paid and you have got people criticising you and you got that. When it, when it was with Neath, there was none of that, you know. And obviously, there's people watching and you know they'd have their say in the stands, but you, you know you didn't know anything about that. Like you know, I was just out there, loving my rugby, and um, I'd come from British Steel, so I played a season or season and a half in Britain, the Steel Company. Uh, senior rugby and then got picked up with Neath and oh, I I just love in every game and, and and to be honest I had a bit of luck as well to get to get a run I think you know you, you've got to be dedicated to your sport and you know to make it to the top but I think you need a bit of luck along the way and I remember I was on the bench um, it was a, a scrum five sort of the scrum five cameras were there and I was like I was bouncing and I was thinking oh, I hope I get on Sean Connor was the 10 who'd he's, he's playing for the Ospreys but he wasn't needed for the Ospreys so he came <coughs> came down and played for Neath so I was on the bench and just hoping to get five minutes and then he got injured after about 10-15 minutes and I came on and I think I kicked kicked all my goals and kicked a, a two drop goals I think and all of a sudden he's out injured I'm playing the rest of the season then and you know I have, I have a good season and then the following season for Neath um, I go on a Welsh tour to Argentina 
So, you know, if, if Sean Connor hadn't got injured, he'd only had five minutes and hadn't made an impact, you know, it's, it's interesting that how it, it could go, like, you know, and I know it's something, you know, the cream always does rise to the top, but, you know, sometimes it perhaps doesn't get there. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned just now about the, like, the, the flipping abuse side of things and, and also, I mean, you said about people, you, you, you play for love of the game. Do you think that is maybe less the, well, less the case mm. now where, See, one of the things I see with fo- football, just mm. to, I don't want to compare the two because they're completely different. And I, I love rugby and yeah. I don't love football. Right? I enjoy <laughs> watching it, but I, everything else about it, I don't yeah. like yeah. from the, the way like, a lot of fans are and just the hooliganism and even the way they conduct themselves on the sidelines, the parents yeah. and that, from a grassroots level. I'd never been involved with football until my daughter started playing. And all of a sudden I found myself involved yeah. and then I was doing the touchline. You were, the, not, you were the hooligan, then? Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I know the hooligans haven't got me because I was on touchline. Didn't know the offside rule, nothing. Like it was a joke, but it's it. What I noticed in football. So get this right, and this is England because yeah. my my kids live in England. I live in England, and what I noticed in football is at the grassroots level is the inch. We know how much of a, of a factor money is in football. It's a factor in rugby, right, as well. But this is a much of a factor is in football. That at a grassroots level, mm. when my youngest started playing, when she was seven or eight years old, she started playing football, right? And money was a factor there, mm. seven or eight years old. If she wanted to, for example, change clubs mm. mid-season, there'd be a transfer fee. At that age? Seven, eight years old. There'd be a transfer fee because they'd have to pay the league to transfer clubs at that age, right? And so when you're mm. introducing money at that age, how can you... Exp- like, it, first off, it takes away that playing for the love of the game. Yeah. Money is involved straight away. And I think as it, as it, that, that's where the problems start with the football. Yeah. So when it comes to the rugby, and now with the introduction of you know all the money, and it's brilliant that you guys get paid what you get paid, but... I think it does take away, maybe, and potentially in the future, that <clears throat> the respect for the game, the reason why you do it. I'm playing with your mates as well, I suppose. So, like, you know, if a seven years old, like, I, I look back at the teams I was playing when I was seven years old or, or 12, 13 years old. I remember, obviously, the clubs I played for, but the, the boys I was playing with at that time. So, if you're jumping around clubs at, at that age, especially, you know, how you can get any consistency and build up any tidy friendships as well. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, there we go. I mean, how, how much was that a factor? So, how much was that a factor when when you were switching between clubs? How much a factor did that play? The sort of community side of it, the friendship side of it, the peer group, you know? Yeah, like obviously, I, I moved from from the Ospreys to Gloucester, and then to France. Um, and to be honest, with you, the when I moved from the Ospreys to to Perpignan, it was a obviously I, I'm chuffed I did it, and it, it was more than a money move in the end, but. Initially, it was it was because I was offered good money, and in rugby, as you know, it's nowhere near as much as football. And we spoke about you know you got a life after it, and you know you want to try and look after your family. So it was that was a big factor in it. And you know that when I got there, then I realised what a, what a great place it was, what a great club it is. And um, you know at the time, you know you probably you see the contract, and you're like, well, but like yeah, you know you, you don't think about too much else. But I, I obviously knew Perpignan was a top club. Um, and, and great supporters because I played there the year before for the Ospreys and they came to us and, and, and played against us so um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled I did it and experienced a different country because I suppose if I wasn't playing rugby you know, I wouldn't have experienced or I would never have gone to live in, in a place like I in France for, for three years or, or even Gloucester mm. Going back to the social media side mm. how do you deal how do you deal with the stings so the shit you get when you move clubs the 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 abuse you get when you make a mistake on the pitch, how how do you deal with that stuff? To be, I didn't I didn't go on Twitter until quite late on. Interestingly, you brought Twitter up straight away. Yeah, well, no, that's that's the social media side, isn't it? That is the the fan it side is. of it, isn't it? It's also a super negative one. Well, it is. It oh is. my god! And it's it's a great tool for for the players and and the fans to interact who use it properly. Exactly. Yeah. But then it's it's a it's it's a tool for people who just want to have. A, want to have a go at you and I did experience it you know probably towards the end of my international career I can't remember exactly when I got onto Twitter but it was, it was later than a lot of the players and then I sort of give in to the temptation and, and got on it and yeah after, sometimes after Welsh games if I knew you know I didn't have the, the best game I, I wouldn't even bother looking I'd know and you, you, you turn it on and it'd be just you just flick down you think don't even start looking at that because <laughs> it'll drive you into the ground like you know but I think 
Yeah, it, it is tough, and I, and, I, and I see it now. Obviously, you now I finished, and people on on social media just just calling players out, and yeah, I don't like that. And obviously, what you got the sort of the mental health factor now as well, and it, it's it's amazing how much it affects, you know, people's minds. Like you know, even though they might not show it, and uh, I had a good quote the other day from from somebody that uh, um, no no snowflake feels responsible for for the avalanche. So you know that one comment can. Can make all all the difference, and you know they don't really realize it. You know, ten seconds, just a quick throwaway comment can can make a difference to someone. And yeah, I've never been a, a fan of all that sort of nonsense, really. You know, if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. I I think that's a great that's a great quote. Was it? No snowflake feels the effect of the avalanche. Feels responsible feels for the, responsible avalanche. the avalanche. Yeah. Who said that? Are you, I think it was uh, you know Matt Johnson, the TV presenter. The Welsh TV presenter. Oh right, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he, he was on. He was on a podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and I heard him say it. And uh, I thought, yeah, it's just, that's, that's pretty true, to be honest. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Because with the social media for anything these days, sports, flipping business, anything, you you you, you have realistically you have to have a presence. You've got to have a presence there. And then, and then the other challenge to it is. So one of the things I tell myself, not that I get much hate, like I don't hardly get anything unless I bring it on myself by saying something ridiculous, is. Don't look at the negative stuff. Yeah, like because there are some places that people they just they just post negative stuff because yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, um, I go yeah, don't read that. But one of the one of the challenges is if you're going to be on social media, mm. you need to be engaging with the people who are engaging with you, yeah. which means you've got to read through stuff. Yeah, and sometimes that stuff stinks. <laughs> do you yeah. get um, do you get any? Uh, have you ever had any coaching when you were playing to to do with dealing with social media, dealing with that psychological aspect? <laughs> Funny, we speak about Tim. So Tim was in in the police force. So he does uh, presentations about not just social media, but about the boys going out out on a night out and getting in trouble and just avoiding confrontation and stuff. Obviously, from his police background and stuff. So he's he's done presentations on on that for the boys and probably well, it's been brought in since he's come in the last two or three years, which I think most of the boys are aware of. But you know, the boys, especially maybe sometimes the younger boys, they'll go out have a few drinks and. You know, perhaps they won't be thinking as they probably normally would be, and, and tweet something, and all of a sudden the paper can pick it up. And so you, they've got to be careful with that. And, and Tim is is a guy to sort of keep them keep them in line with things like that. But and just realise that you know one one comment or one tweet can can you know make all hell break loose, like you know. Mm. Yeah. So are you gonna have you got are you gonna set up social media accounts for the book? Not for the book. No, no, we're not. No. So obviously, it'll just go through my my social media and. And Dave, who I'm doing the book with on the publisher and stuff. So, yeah, we actually we actually got a YouTube channel with uh, some some rugby skills videos and stuff, which I'm doing. So that'll, that'll be sort of part of the the book. It's called Chasing a Rugby Dream. So that's with the the YouTube channel we'll be using. Huh. Oh, yeah. I, oh, so, so what's it going to be on the channel again? Sorry, uh, it's the channel's called Chasing a Rugby Dream. Or the book is called Chasing a Rugby Dream. Yeah. So there'll be a YouTube channel because there's there's books a uh, part part of the book. Um, Jimmy's you know, performing different skills and things, so I want to try and replicate those fr- from myself into a YouTube channel, so the kids can read the book and then flip across the YouTube channel if you want to pick up on some of the tips that that Jimmy's been performing in the book. And you're going to act them out on? on- yeah, I've done. I've done uh, ah. four or five now already for the release next week, um, and I just keep building on that as the books go on. Then you know. You mean rugby skills tips? Yeah. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Have you recorded any yet? Yeah, yeah, I've recorded uh, about four, four, five videos. Well, like, well, give me examples of them. Oh, just, just your, your passing tips, your kicking tips. Um, what other ones I've done? Sidestepping. Uh, just yeah, your, your general rugby tips for for the young ones to look at. Hey, I'm going to be subscribing. <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> subscribing. Back garden, no. I retired in. Uh, I say retired. I retired from my uh, non-professional rugby in 2009, and then I've just because of the forces barbarians, I've just got back into it. And uh, yeah, everything. One of the things I've discovered is everything's fine. I'm fit as a fiddle. Apart, well, you can't get you. You can. It's like it must be you in your off season. Nothing prepares your body for the impact. Just hitting people with your body. Just, yeah. just I couldn't walk for about a week after. Same as you, Simon. Couldn't walk <laughs> for about a week after that first rugby for heroes match. But then the other thing is handling, mate. 
Oh my god! Oh, I hadn't touched the rugby ball in like five years. Literally, I hadn't touched yeah. it in five years, six years. It's like picking a pen up when you first go back to school after six weeks all day, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I went train. Yeah, I went train. Yeah, yeah. Your hands in. Yeah, you don't know where you are, do you? <laughs> yeah, your hands in on the biro. You have to you have to stop every two seconds flipping it. Yeah, I went training with uh, I went training with old Le- old Lemontonians a couple of weeks back. Again, that's my f- bear in mind. I played two matches last year for rugby for heroes, but uh, I the, my first training session was about two weeks ago. And training with people who, who still play all the time. They're like 35 years plus. Yeah, they still yeah, play yeah. all the time, yeah. mate. Could I get one pass? I, I was just passport looking. <laughs> Man, they flipping hated me. They hated it's, me. <laughs> it's mad how quick you lose it, mind, isn't it? You know, it's just, you take for granted new training every day. But uh, yeah, like I am trained out with a rugby ball properly for, well, since, since before the lockdown. So it's that March, is it? March, April. Mm. So, yeah. Do you want to keep it up, even though you're not playing? I'll keep my, my fitness up and stuff, not, not to the extent that I was when I was, when I was playing, but I do uh, sort of two, three, five K runs a week around the cliffs in, in Mumbles where I live. And I got it before the lockdown because uh, I was hoping to have a few games to finish the season, but obviously that didn't happen. I set up just a, a bench and some dumbbells and like a, like a prowler out the back garden. So I just kept that up now. So I go, I don't, I don't go to, to any gyms, I just do, do a bit out the back, do go for a run, do some weights, sort of three, three times a week and I'm happy with that I'm comfortable with that so you keep ticking over but yeah I, I don't want to sort of train to the extent I, I was when I was playing because I felt well maybe in, in, in the future in like four or five years time perhaps maybe think about different but at the moment I've just finished I'm I'm happy just uh, sort of ticking over yeah. you know when you were, when you were training and preparing especially your most recent stint like the Ospreys before you retired do they pay any attention to, not only pay any attention, but do they do any level of re- reduction of like impact uh, impact activities in the training sessions, either in the beat up to the season mm. or in between the games? Do they sort of have a policy where they switch off the impact stuff, like attack big hits, tackling, stuff like that, or do they keep it all in like normal? Because when I was, uh, granted, I never played professional rugby, yeah. but it was, you know, you, you trained like you were going to play. But then as time goes on, especially in other sports, mm. there seems to be attention being paid to in between, right, let's, let's, let's calm down on the impact yeah. stuff. So even more so, probably the last two or three years I've noticed, like usually you, when, when I first started, your Tuesday would be a big contact day. You do 40, 45 minutes flat out contact. Um, but towards the end, it, it's actually changed again a little bit now with the Ospreys. You know, they do probably a little bit more contact than I did towards the last couple of years of my career. But because you know the game is so physical, I think as long as you're physically fit and you're mentally ready and technically, you know, you you, you do hits with a with a bag and you know if if you are doing sort of fifteen v fifteen, you know, you get shoulders on and you know you'd have the odd sort of five ten minutes worth of flat out contact. But I think you know the, the game, the match on the weekend is so physical itself. I think you know if you kept doing that throughout the weekend during the game, you know, the boys' bodies would just break down. You know, you, you see the amount of injuries now. From, from a game just on the weekend so with that impact during the week as well it'll soon take its toll so I, you know there's only so much you can do yeah how much of a concern is it amongst players with the head injuries aspect obviously the head injuries have always been there head clashes mm. have always always been there right but obviously um, sci- medical science is advancing and you see more <laughs> um, attention being paid to it how much of a concern is it for players at the moment oh, you concerned yeah, it's just, well I, when I was playing, I, I wasn't too concerned about it. Me, I had a couple of head knocks and got knocked out a couple of times and had a bit of concussion and you know, I had one, one bad sort of, for me, you know, a bad head injury in, in South Africa. Um, on a summer tour, I went to tackle sort of Andrew Bishop, who, you know, he's not a great great idea anyway, but uh, especially when I tried and tackle him with my temple into his hip, it he uh, sort of knocked me out and, and I had memory loss for, for a few hours and, and that, was, that was quite scary, but, you know, you see some of the concussions, you know, sort of George North, Lee Halfpenny, they, they are picking up and, you know, I suppose it's concerning when you get, you know, four, five, six different concussions and, you know, you're out of the game for, for months, you know, that that's when it does get a bit of a worry and going back again, what we're saying, you know, you, you finish mid-30s and you've got the rest of your life to live with your family, so that that is a worry and, you know, hence the reason why, you know, the the world rugby are trying to, you know, cut down the contacts to the to the neck and the head to, to try and protect players. Mm. I had a on on episode ninety nine. I had yeah. a lady on uh, called Mandy Bostwick, yeah. and uh, well, did Sean mention us? Did she? 
did he? No. Oh, yeah, sorry, I think you were grinning there. I think it was he said. Uh, right, so Mandy Bosswick came on my radar within the last sort of year, year and a half. And um, obviously there's, there's uh, like any like like anyone, there's, there, there's mental ill health among some ex-military guys or military guys yeah. and girls, okay? Yeah. And one of those things is like PTSD, for example, or, um, or other mental ill health. And one of the things that uh, Mandy Bosswick is campaigning for, uh, she, sorry, she is a specialist, uh, specialist trauma psychotherapist, okay? Yeah. And one of the things that Mandy is campaigning for, which the Americans are ahead of us on now anyway, um, is for military people to be screened for traumatic brain injuries mm. um, when they join a certain periods in their in their service and then after an incident particularly blast incidents not just impact to be uh screened for a traumatic brain injury yeah. and one of those one of the reasons this come, has come about is uh, so i remember first hearing about tbis from my dad actually god six or seven years ago and um and it was about american football in america funny enough yeah <laughs> and there was they'd done a study and of People, uh, players who had been who had died. You can only, you could, at the time, you could only test for CTE, which is um, damage to the brain, TBI. You can only test for it after people had died, right? And they were testing. They've been asked to test certain people to see if they were suffering from CTE due to repeated knocks on yeah, the head. Yeah. And the reason was they reckoned that this was causing erratic behaviour out of out of out of uh, character behaviour and like like criminal stuff, like alcohol, um, drug abuse, stuff like that, right? Um, and they found that on this study, 90 or 95% of the people that they did these tests on, they had mm. they had this damage to the brain. Now, that doesn't mean 90, 95% of American football players have it because no. these people are all at erratic behavior. They're probably going to have it anyway. But anyway, through um, following on from that, what's been discovered is that at the moment, um, sort of that erratic behaviour, mental health, depression, for example, mm. anxiety, for example, all like common things you experience when like, you're on about what you're saying about going from, I'm doing this, this is my life, and then mm. all of a sudden, an abrupt change, injury mm. or whatever, and you have to you have to change out your routine, and you go down the pan sometimes. Yeah. And what uh, what Mandy's come, what Mandy is saying, and the science is saying, is that this isn't just like a, a psychiatric issue. It's not just a lot of the time, it's not just the case of going in front of your therapist and talk about what's going on. A lot of the time, most of the time, is actually a physiological change in your brain. Mm. So what happens when you get a head a head impact or like a blast trauma or you get a head impact um, is it the brain goes into a like a, a fight or a, a fight or flight mode. It, it's like it goes into survival mode, yeah. and so it shuts down. A, it ch- changes its brain chemistry and causes a change in your brain, which upsets the sort of the the, the neurology side of things. The, the, the not neurology uh, it, uh, imbalances the hormones in your brain. Yeah. So what she's campaigning for is screening various stages of military service to see what your baseline sort of brain state is when you join. Yeah. And then if you have an injury. <clears throat> blast or head impact how it affects what is it after and they can compare that to what it was and go right they need to increase this hormone and bring it back into balance and then address the psychiatry side of things yeah which i think what is That's what they starting to do. yeah which i think is what they're starting to do in america with american football as well american military are already doing it but they're not doing it over here yet and there is this is one of the reasons why i think the head injuries concerns come about because a lot of times the symptoms don't manifest themselves for like four or five years until like four or five mm. years later you know, so like that film Concussion is it? Have you seen that Concussion? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Yeah, because that's obviously about the American football and the brain injury side of things. And when they they uh, finish playing American football, they have all the, the anxiety, depression, and they're wondering whether it's from from the head knocks. But I'm not sure whether American football won't want to sort of entertain it because obviously it's a multi-billion-pound sport, and then they they don't want anything like that sort of sort of jeopardising their sport, I suppose. Well, yeah, this is part of the issue with. Well, to caveat that, mate. So one of the things that uh, that they've discovered out of when you identify a TBI, if you identify it and treat it within the first six months, you can bring it almost back. You can almost cure it completely. Yeah. Now, one of the problems with the military is, you know, you let's say you you part you get blown up in, I don't know, flipping Afghanistan, or Iraq, or wherever, yeah. or or some accident in training in the UK. Well, on a tour, say it's a six month tour. 
Mm. You like you don't get screen for TBIs in a minute, so there's no hope of getting of getting um, screen for it at any point and getting treated within like a month or flipping yeah, yeah. whatever whatever length of time it is. Um, which is the point it's making. It's like when by the time they discover it, which is the worry I think with sports, especially contact sports, American football, rugby, stuff like that, boxing, MMA, is that they're not realizing it's there until it's too late. And yeah, it's really yeah. difficult to bring it back to baseline. That's just, it's interesting and scary at the same time, isn't it? But the point there is, if you can if you can screen for it, it doesn't impact the sport. Yeah. See. Yeah. So okay, Lee Halfpenny or James Hook or you know George North or any one of you guys, head impact off. Well, they do at the minute concussion. Let's yeah. say twenty eight days off. Yeah. You know, hang on, let's screen for a TBI. I don't know if they do it, but let's let's yeah, if they can do, do that. Screen yeah. for a TBI yeah. and then just start the treatment because a lot of time with the with it, it's it's the neuroendocrinology changes mm. what it is, which is the hormones in the brain. It's simply a treatment of to rebalance the hormones. Yeah. Literally treat you with hormones, and then to bring that back to baseline. Okay, you're good to go again. Now yeah. let's check your psychiatry side of things. So, like you say, they'd all have to have a scan at the start, wouldn't they, just to see what their brain is like ideally, to start with? Yeah. Ideally. So, the problem at the moment with the military aspect—well, it's going to be with all of it, the rugby mm. side and all that—is there isn't like you haven't got a baseline. But what they do have, definitely in America, um, and they're trying to get it in the UK, is they get they've got um, basically a database of people's uh, uh, general public who've had these scans because mm. they just. Fucking, it's called a meg scan, right? But people have them as part of other stuff. Yeah. They got a general baseline of what the normal person should be generally on your your neuroendocrinology levels. Yeah. So for someone who hasn't had a baseline scan like yourself, you do a scan and they compare you to that national average kind of. They got uh, it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got. You know, this lunatic hook has got shed loads <laughs> of testosterone. <laughs> That's definitely what we're coming up with. It is. It's interesting because it's new science. The, the research is all there, but it's one of those you sort of hope it's not going to take years to come into place. Because mm. you know, it's it's like I said, it doesn't affect the military; it affects everyone. Yeah, of course. It people does, in yeah. car crashes, people who flipping fall over on the street and, and bump their head off the pavement, you know, and don't get it looked at mm. or don't get it solved. You, you're talking four, five years, six, eight lines. Sometimes long, less, sometimes longer. They go into depression. Anxious, they just go down the pan, they chop themselves, or they flip, end up on the streets or whatever. Yeah. And it seemingly you don't know, yeah, you don't know that's, why. That's true. It's interesting you talk about concussion. Have you seen Shane's documentary? He did on concussion. I've seen that. It, uh, he goes out and he meets, he does a Skype call actually. I think that's an American surgeon, I think it is, um, or a doctor or something. And he, you know, he asked, he's speaking to Shane and he said about his advice. On, on kids and just r- people playing rugby in general and he was like don't do it don't do it you'd be you'd be still he's really extreme like you know and uh, probably a bit too extreme but he was dead against it because you know he thought that the head knocks would have that much of an impact on him that it, it wasn't worth it like you know yeah it's, it's, it's a con- yeah. it's a concern of mine it genuinely is I'm lucky I've got girls and all mm. not kind of into that thing yeah um, uh, but yeah it is a concern and the, the challenge of these things is right this is two thousand. This is not going to say two thousand and twenty. Then I said it the other day. This is twenty twenty. How long will we be on the planet for? You know, we sort of managed all the way now. It's yeah. not. It doesn't seem like it's a major drama. Like, why are we paying attention? It's always been done that way. I started playing rugby when I was seven <laughs> years old. I was doing American football. I was flipping this out the other. It, it seems to be hard to identify what the issue was in the first place, especially mm. when you talk about issues like depression, anxiety, yeah. all that kind of stuff, which it seems unrelated and it seems to be a psychiatry aspect and seems to be this world where it's difficult to understand how to fix it. But mm. now, like with what Mandy Bostwick is is saying and these other, like, it's, it's scientists around the world are saying it, is that, no, it's not just that fluffy psychiatry thing. No. There are, there's like physical things in the body, physiological things in the body we can look at and we can help fix this stuff. Oh, it'd be silly to turn your nose up at that and sort of just you know, not, not entertain it, wouldn't it? You, you've got to look into stuff like that, and especially with, like you mentioned, depression and all that sort of thing. It's, it's highlighted a lot more now, isn't it? And if, if that is a, a major issue or a major connection with the two, then you know, what a breakthrough that'd be. It is. A, I, think part of the, I, think part of the, I think part of the resistance to it is, one of the bits of resistance to it is, is you think of the lawsuits. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's another thing in that film concussion with Will Smith. You know, the, the lawsuits that could come in place if if something like that was to do with with American football. How can Will Smith ended up doing that? That's a good question. I don't know. Have, have a look at it. Have a look at it and let me know what you think. 
Yeah, I'll have to watch that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> first, two, first, two, so you got two book, two book deal. Yeah. Are you are you already? Are they already written? Oh, the first one is obviously. First one's done. It's out next week, and the second one is pretty much it's finished, but it's just going to edit now because, like I say, the first one was supposed to be out June the fourth. Um, so we we planned initially to get the second one out before Christmas, but obviously it's all been put back. The second one will be out now after Christmas. So, yeah, and if if, if they go well, hopefully we'll get um, we'll you know do do some more books because that's what we want. We want. Ideally, get a series, and, and Jimmy, Jimmy Joseph, the the boy in the book. Uh, hopefully, what we want him to grow, you know, as, as the book goes on. So, did you know someone called Jimmy Joseph? No, no, no. I, I, I we like the name Jimmy because I, I'm James, and uh, and Ian Evans, a second row for the Ospreys in Wales. He used to call me Jimmy, and I don't know, it's, just, it's a decent name for a guy in a kid's book, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's not Evan Evans either. Or something like that. So it's like UK, it's UK friendly. It is, it is. <laughs> England, England friendly. Yeah, it's no, it's no Welsh, slam by the both wing, all that sort of stuff in there. Yeah. Like, start wrapping it up. Been a, been a, been a pleasure talking to you. Um, anything else we, you want to cover? Uh, oh, we haven't. We covered a fair bit there, didn't we? Did, uh, yeah, like think anything else? Or? I'm looking forward to reading the book, mate. I go on in a car for you, so oh, you yeah. can uh, you can have that along with uh, with the jersey as well for you. Yeah, so I appreciate it. Appreciate pleasure, it. no problem. I appreciate it, mate. An absolute pleasure. Hey, nice one, Hugh. Oh no, hang on. I know. How do people buy the book? So <laughs> you can go <laughs> you can go on Amazon and search for Chasing a Rugby Dream, and yeah, like it's next week it'll be out in all the bookshops, Waterstones, all all the local bookshops and things. So yeah, keep an eye out for it. We got a uh, we got a Forces Barbarians jersey for you as well. Oh, top man. Thank you very much. No problem, mate. Been a pleasure. Good luck with everything. Hey, cheers, Hugh. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the H Hour podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to support the podcast and support me and what I do, you can do that via patreon.com forward slash HK podcast. You get lots of perks, you get lots of access. Sometimes you can get to ask. The uh, ask the guests some questions. You get you get you get prior notice of future guests coming on, which the Joe public don't get. So um, yeah, patreon.com forward slash HK podcast. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters. You are all very much appreciated. And a special thank you to Stephen Gray, one of my most recent Patreon supporters. He's a Swansea boy, so I'm sure he'll uh, be happy with uh, getting mentioned on the podcast uh, next to um, oh, James Hook's podcast, I should say. Stephen, thank you for uh, joining up, mate. Keep an eye on the other Grey that we both know. Uh, he's a slightly strange individual, but we will mention him. We'll just mention you, Stephen. And, uh, yeah, stay safe. I'll see you soon, buddy, for a pint. Oh, I've got a patch. You like patches, don't you? Military patches. I'll get you a, I'll get you a, a special patch. I'll pass it on to you, and you can add that to your collection. Also, thank you to my sponsors today. Rugby for Heroes, not-for-profit organisation raising money for military charities. They're organising... Rugby-oriented events and supper clubs and also beer and gin festivals. Rugbyforheroes.org is where you need to keep up to date with what the next events are, when those next events are going to be. And also to keep up to date with uh, what the Forces Barbarians RFC are doing. Um, the Forces Barbarians RFC are obviously the, the, uh, one of the fundraising arms for Rugby for Heroes and very proud they are to be associated with Rugby for Heroes too. So Rugbyforheroes.org and foobars.co.uk also thank you to the Aardvark group for all of the support they give to the military community including sponsoring this podcast and also for the amazing work they do with technical innovations and protecting people property assets from the risk and threat of unexploded ordnance aardvark.group for more on the Aardvark group that's it thank you for listening to the podcast until next time out <laughs>